It's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Good morning. All right. Um, still picking it up? Yes. Yeah. Let me see if I can scoot over a little bit. How's that? Better? No? Yeah, still? Still some feedback? Um, maybe I'm too close. Technical difficulties, right? First Sunday? Something's going to go wrong, right? All right. If not, I'll just uh, use the voice that God gave me without a microphone. Yeah, it's still there. Okay. All right. How's that? Better? All right, <laughs> okay, something happened. All right, praise the Lord. Uh, well, hey, thank you all for, um, uh, it's so great to see everyone's faces, and for those of you watching online, um, so uh, we're so blessed to be fellowshipping with you. Uh, today we're going to continue in the study of Hebrews, so if you would uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to focus on uh, verse 22 today, uh, which says, By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Again, by faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. And so as we get ready to pray, as we get ready to start um, like any story, as we cover this section, it begins with a promise. And so with that in mind, let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we come before you right now. We ask that you would, uh, Lord, just bless this time in your word. Uh, Lord, um, as we think about all the things that we can have in this world, clean water, food to eat, shelter, clothes, Lord God. Uh, Lord, nothing sustains us like your word. Jesus, you said, um, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And so here we are, uh, Lord, our, our mouths are open as Jeremiah, as you spoke to the prophet. And Lord, we are asking that you would feed us, Lord God, that you would nourish us, Lord God, that you would replenish us with your word. How we need your counsel, how we need your word. So, Father, just bless this time. Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would minister to each and every one of us. You know where every one of us is. 
You know the things that we are dealing with. You know the trials that, uh, Lord, we've, we've gone through, and you know the trials that are, to, are coming ahead. And so we pray, Lord, for a, um, a, a refreshing time. And, and of course, Jesus, we, we love you. And we thank you that you are the word made flesh. And Jesus, your blood brings us into this relationship that we have. So we thank you. We ask that you bless this time. In the name of Yeshua, amen. And so as I said, every story begins with a promise. Um, our story in particular begins with a promise that occurs in Genesis chapter 3. We're all familiar with that story, right? And in Genesis chapter 3, you see uh, this scenario between Adam and Eve and the father and the serpent. And how the serpent, using his, his means of beguiling, uh, caused Adam and Eve to fall from grace. Uh, to, to sin against the father. And so that relationship was severed that man and women enjoyed in the garden as they walked with the Lord in the cool evening of the day. But God didn't leave things the way that it was. God made a promise. He said that, uh, Eve, through your seed, uh, the entire world will receive redemption. And so the seed of the woman is the promised heir, the one who brings about salvation. And we all know who that is. That is the Messiah, the anointed one. But there are other promises as we track from Genesis chapter 3. We see in Genesis chapter 12 that there's this guy who lives in this kingdom called Ur. And God speaks to him and says, hey, you, leave this place and go to a place that I have. I've got a land set aside for you. I've got a promise set aside for you. I want you to head to this place called Ur. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, we see that this man is Abram or Abraham. And so Abraham, he, he leaves his childhood place. He leaves the place where he lived in, in, in obedience to God calling him into this relationship. And he becomes the very first Hebrew. In fact, in, in Hebrew, that word literally means uh, Eber, one who crosses over. He, he crossed over the Euphrates River by faith, believing that the God who called to him, the God who's faithful, the God of eternity, was calling him into a relationship and had a destiny set aside for him. But it doesn't stop there. In Genesis chapter 15, uh, God makes another promise to this man, Abraham. Uh, first of all, the first promise in chapter 12 was that he would become the father of many. In fact, his name was Abram. Then his name became Abraham. And what God did was he inserted his spirit. That little H that we get there is the Hebrew word hey, which means behold, God has done something. And what did God do? God put his spirit in Abraham, and Abraham truly did become a father of nations because the man was 100 years old and his wife was 90. They both were literally dead. But God brought about a promised heir. That name, the name of that heir was Isaac. And of course, his name means laughter because you would laugh too if God said that you're going to have a child at 190, respectively. And so we have this promise. God is going to bring the Messiah through Abraham. God is going to bring redemption through Abraham. Uh, God is going to save the world through Abraham. And then God speaks to Abraham and says in chapter 15, hey, by the way, your descendants who are going to be great, they're going to spend 400 years in a place called Egypt. But I'm going to call them up again. And I'm going to bring them into the land that I've shown you. Because at one point, God showed Abraham. He showed them from the, from the north to the south, from the east to the west, this entire land that he had promised him. He says, look, I'm going to bring them back to this land after I bring them up from Egypt. 
And so we have several promises that are happening. And so the question becomes, where does Joseph fit in all this? Well, let's go back and read the passage in Genesis chapter, I'm sorry, oh, now it goes to Genesis. Sorry, my Bible's doing weird things. Uh, my Bible app, it didn't want to go to Genesis 12 earlier. Um, okay, all right, never mind that. You guys have to bear with me. I'm a little kind of interesting sometimes. Uh, but back in, um, back in Hebrews, verse 22 says, By faith Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. What, in the nutshell, what's happening here is that Joseph, when he is about to see the end of his days, Joseph prophesies. He prophesies based upon what God has already said to his father Abraham. He says, guys, it doesn't look like it, but one day God is going to take us out. It doesn't seem like it, but one day God is going to remove us. Things are very comfortable right now, but God actually, believe it or not, has a better place. Or things may be hard, but God has promised to redeem us. So at the end of his life in verse 22, he made mention of the exodus. He saw what God was going to do, and he believed it so much so that he gave directions. He said, look, this is what you're supposed to do with my bones. When God calls you out of Egypt, this is what I want you to do with my bones. Now, a couple of things to know about Egypt, right? Anyone ever been to Egypt? I've never been to Egypt. But what's the one? Okay, all right, Pastor John's been to Egypt. Okay, there's always one. Um, what do you think about when you think of Egypt? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Pyramids. Pyramids, thank you. Love that. You guys are participating. I love that. And what are pyramids for? What's the purpose of a pyramid? A tomb. Man, you guys are on it. Notice Joseph did not ask for a pyramid. He did not ask for a tomb. Now, what was Joseph's rank? He was the second most important, powerful man in all of Egypt. Surely, someone who did the things that God accomplished through him would receive some sort of memorial some sort of lasting monument to say, here lies Joseph, the savior of Egypt, the savior of the world. But Joseph has no monument. He has no tomb in Egypt. Why? Because Joseph wanted to be buried in the land of promise. Because Joseph saw and believed the promise that God made to his father Abraham and said, I want to be a part of what God is doing. And I have rejected this world. I have rejected this society. I have rejected this great nation, the nation that was the most powerful nation at the time. Joseph said, no, I am casting aside the glory of this world for the glory of the world to come. And so Joseph prophesied by faith. You know, it's interesting. We can believe something and we can say, you know what? Yeah, I completely believe that. Like, for example, I could say, I believe that chair is sufficiently engineered such that it will support my weight. 
I believe I can sit on it. I believe there won't be any problems. This chair will not let me down. This chair will absolutely keep me sitting upright. I can say that all I want, but the proof is in the pudding. In order to demonstrate my belief, I need to do what? I need to sit in that chair. And I love this about Joseph. Joseph believed that God was going to keep his promise to his father Abraham, and he believed in such a way that he even organized the details concerning his bones. But let's, let's back up a little bit. Let's, let's kind of get some insight into who this man is, Joseph, because his story ostensibly begins in Genesis chapter 37. We see there that he is the son born of a woman. And who is this woman? I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 30. This woman, who is this woman that is his mother? His mother's name is Rachel. And what's special about Rachel? What's special about Rachel is that she is the woman that Jacob fell in love with. When Jacob leaves, per, uh, having angered his brother Esau, having deceived his father Isaac, uh, receiving the blessing that, by the way, God had already said he was going to receive, uh, Jacob leaves and he goes down and he spends his years with Laban. And when he encounters Rachel, he falls in love with her so much so that he is willing to work to become her husband. And we know the story, right? He, he worked seven years. Laban promised him, like, oh, if you work for me seven years, I will, I will give you Rachel. And then seven years were up, and then um, he finds out that, hey, this Rachel, this is not Rachel. This is Leah. And Laban says, oh, well, it's not customary in our society to uh, marry off our younger daughter before our older daughter. So um, guess what? You want her. Another, another more seven years, buddy. And what did, what did he do? He worked for her. And the Bible says that because he loved her so tenderly, those seven years were as if it were a couple of days. And so he marries Rachel, he marries Leah, and, and away they go. There's some other drama that happens there. There's always family drama. And the Bible is good about showing us family drama, right? So it, help us, it helps us to normalize our own family drama, right, when we look at what's going on with them. And off they go, and um, as they're going, um, or this whole process, we see that Leah is having sons, and Rachel's not. Bilhah and Zilpha, their handmaids, they're having sons, but Rachel's not. And so for a woman during that time to not be able to bear children, especially not be able to bear children to the man whom she loved and the man whom loved her greatly, that was horrible. That was horrific. And so she would talk about things like reproach. We don't use that word reproach very much today. In fact, you know, like, uh, what happened to you at work? Oh, I was very much reproached by my boss, you know, or I was driving down 45 and someone cut me off. The reproach was so palpable. You know, we don't really use that word today. But there was a great reproach. In fact, in verse 22, it says, then God remembered. And, you know, we can just stop right there because sometimes when life is going on, when, when God has spoken to us, when God has showed us something and he says, hey, look, I, I want you to do this and we're, I'm bringing this about. And it doesn't happen when we want it to happen. We think God has forgotten. But we serve the Holy One of Israel. And the only thing God forgets, as the word of God tells me, is our sins. Because he separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. In fact, uh, when we are covered by the blood of Jesus, our sins are no longer remembered. That's what God forgets. 
But his promises, he does not forget. When God says something, it will come to pass. When God gives us a word of faith to believe that he's going to do something, God is faithful. He will bring it to pass. And so verse 22, it says, God remembered Rachel. He never forgot her. He never forgot about who she was. The issue is that he had a timing and a purpose. So he remembered Rachel. He listened to her. He opened her womb. Verse 23, she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. Verse 24, and she called his name Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. I want you to take away something here, because the name Joseph basically means, may he add. But the other part of the name, the meaning of the name Joseph is, he has taken away. And so we have Rachel giving us the definition of this boy that's about to be born. What does his son, what does his, his name mean? His name means God has taken away and may he add. You know, a lot of times if we really think about what God has done in our lives, he has taken away the penalty that we should have paid. And he has added life, eternal life, abundant life. Life that is filled with his blessings. Life that we can never comprehend apart from him. Think about all the things God has taken away from you. All the things he has saved you from. All the things he has delivered you from. But the great thing about the Lord is that he's not one who just takes away, but he adds. Abundantly, immeasurably, pressed down, shaken together. God can add to our lives when we surrender to him. I love that word from Pastor Matthew a couple of weeks ago. He was talking about, um, he was talking about Jacob and, and the fact that Jacob was walking around with a limp and the fact that his name was Israel, which means uh, one who has a wrestle with God, but implying that he submitted to God. And you know, guys, we have to submit to the Lord. We have to submit all of our dreams to the Lord. We have to submit all of our fears, all of our cares, all the things, all our plans. We should submit those to the Lord and trust that if he takes away, he will add. Because blessed is he who rules over the earth, who is the true judge. So Joseph is uh, encapsulated by God has taken away and may he add. Her reproach, her inability to bear children, the shame of, of not being able to bear a child to her love, Jacob, now all of a sudden wiped out with the birth of this child. And, and like all families, all families have problems. Joseph quickly became the child that Jacob loved. Jacob delighted in Joseph and much to the uh, chagrin of his older 10 brothers. And we know how that played out. Uh, but there's another factor. Not only was, were they jealous of Jacob because of uh, their father's uh, uh, predilection towards him, because of their father's uh, love for him, but they were also jealous because God started speaking to this boy. He started giving him prophecies. He gave him a prophecy of one day these sheaves, these uh, tall stalks and grains of wheat, and how they were 12 of them, and that his grain uh, uh, was taller and higher than, than, the, than the other brothers, and that they all bowed down to him. And they're like, you mean we're going to serve you? Man, get out of here. What's wrong with you, boy? They didn't take that very well. Then he had another dream of the sun and the moon and the stars and, and how they all bowed towards him. And, and the Bible says that as Jacob listened to this, 
right? They were like, are you trying to say that we're going to serve you? But, but he still thought about these things. He pondered these things internally. And so uh, as a culmination of the jealousy of his brothers, uh, what do they do? They, they really wanted to kill him. They wanted to betray him. They wanted to shed his blood. In fact, his life was spared by his brothers. Uh, Reuben was hoping to get back in good graces because Reuben had been out of good graces with his father Jacob. I won't go into that, but you know you can go back and read that. Um, again, messy family situation. And so Reuben says, no, we're, I'm going to save his life. But it was too late because here comes this caravan and they, the rest of the brothers, they sell this boy. They sell this boy into slavery. And off he goes. Can you imagine that? We've got four kids. I've got two boys and two girls. And the thought of being separated from them, the thought of them going off somewhere, not knowing how much my heart breaks, the thought of them wondering what tomorrow is going to bring because they're separated from their mother and father. You know, that crushes me to think about that. And you think about what Jacob is going through as a father. You think about how his heart was broken as a father. In fact, the Bible says that nearly, that part almost killed him. And when you get to the story later on where now they have to bring Benjamin down to Egypt, um, Judah's like, "Uh, we almost killed our father before. I can't do this to him again. And so Joseph is carried off in this caravan. He's gone down to Egypt. Uh, He is then sold into uh, slavery for uh, this guy named Potiphar, who who is a... um, who is a soldier and and, uh, works in the capacity of Pharaoh, and he's overseeing the house. But something keeps happening to Joseph everywhere he lands. He doesn't understand what's going on. He, He knows that God has spoken to him. He knows that God has given him a vision. He knows that God has given him a prophetic message of something to come. But he doesn't understand why things seem to be falling around. He doesn't understand why his brothers hate him. He doesn't understand why he's been sold into slavery and why he's working thousands of miles from his father. But something keeps happening everywhere he goes because we see this in Potiphar's house. We see this in the jail. It says that as he was faithful, God raised him up. So much so that Potiphar, until he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, Potiphar had no care about anything that was in Joseph's hands because he knew that the Spirit of God was in him. Uh, Potiphar's wife, what does she do? She commits him or she accuses him of of rape falsely or attempted rape. And, And what does Potiphar do? He should have killed him. But Potiphar somehow saw into the character of this young man and instead sends him to the jail cell. And the jailer, it says in the word of God, had no concern for the affairs that were in Joseph's hands. So wherever Joseph ended up, he was faithful. And he worked and did things diligently in such a way that everyone around him saw that there was something different. You know, sometimes when God brings difficulty into our lives. And we say, Lord, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing? I thought, Lord, you said you were going to bring this to pass. What we have to remember is that sometimes, sometimes there are places that are so dark that God needs his brightest light. And sometimes you are that light that God is taking into those those caverns of darkness 
that God has taken into those depths, that God has taken into those areas that are unreached because he has put in you his spirit and he wants you to shine for him. He wants you to make a difference for him. He wants people to look at your life in the midst of difficulty and say, what is it that keeps you going? How is it that you have joy? How is it that you are working in a way that's commendable? Why haven't you given up on your God by now? You said your God promised you to do these things, and and here you are. You're in jail, man. Falsely accused. What's wrong with you? You see, God will bring those situations into our lives because he's giving us an opportunity to shine for him. But he's also giving us an opportunity to be refined. He's also taking care of our character. Um, Remember we were saying, like, you know, why did his brothers not like him? Well, he probably had a little arrogance, if we're being honest, right? There's probably a little bit of pride there. Hey, hey, I am going to be the elevated chief, and you are going to bow down before me, right? And I'm sure you know the whole little daddy's favorite thing probably didn't help matters and so forth. And you know what, guys? Sometimes God has to do a work in our hearts before he can bring us to the place that he desires for us, before he can put us in a position to really be used for him, sometimes God has to clean out those things in us. Amen? Amen. We need to be refined. You know, the beautiful thing about gold is that, you know, you just don't dig into the ground and pull up a chunk of gold and say, look at that. Look how beautiful this is. It takes some work. You recognize the value of that clump of dirt. You recognize what's there, but it takes some work. It takes some chiseling away. It takes some heating. It takes some hammering. It takes some some extra effort. And, you know, we're the clump, and we're like, oh, it's too hot, Lord. So hopefully you have your sweat rack when it's too hot like me. (laughs) Or like, Lord, you're beating on me too much. I can't take this. And the Lord is silent. And we don't hear anything. And we're, we're freaking out. God, I thought you loved me. I thought you cared about me. Why are you bringing me through these trials? That's a key word, though, bringing us through these trials. And so he's hammering away. He's chiseling. He's heating us up. He's removing things. Oh, Lord, I really like that. Why are you taking that away? And then at some point, something beautiful happens. The master looks at us, and he sees his own reflection. See, that's what God is doing in Joseph. He did that with David. He did that with many other men of God, many women of God, faithful men and women. He's looking for his reflection. And so God was doing this in Joseph's life. He's he's taking him through these trials. In fact, he's leaving him in this jail cell where he's interpreting dreams, right? One guy gets his dream interpreted. It's like, oh, man, thanks, Joseph. Appreciate it. Peace out. I'll remember you when I get to Pharaoh's court. Nope. A day goes by, nope. A week goes by, nope. A month, nope. A year, nope. All right? An extended period of time before finally this guy says, what a dunce. Pharaoh has this dream, can't figure it out. This guy's like, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. There's this dude in jail. He totally knows how to interpret dreams. I have been so horrible. So Joseph's called up, sending the lefty, right? He's called up, right, out of the bullpen. Interpret this dream. And he says, hey, you know what? Yeah, your dream basically means you're going to have seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. Hold on to that seven years of famine. File that away in your mind. And Pharaoh's like, wow, amazing. Clearly the spirit of God is in you. 
um, who should we find to do this? And Joseph's like, hey, you need to find a guy that's qualified. He's got this. He's got that. You know, he's got an MBA. He's got a PhD. He's got all this stuff. I'm like, no, no, no. You need to find a man of wisdom. Find a man that has the ability to go over these matters. And what does Pharaoh do? Does Pharaoh say, hey, Dr. So-and-so, go grab him. Or that engineer from MIT, go grab him. No, he says, Pharaoh's like, no, you. Who else but you? The Spirit of God is in you. And that's what's beautiful about this. Because when God has called us to his purpose, there's a qualification in us that is supersedes man's terms and definitions of what it means to be qualified. When we are surrendering our life to the Lord, we are following him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. God has a way of qualifying us and equipping us to the point where we turn around like, oh my goodness, you mean that jail thing was like my five-year degree? That being sold was like my on-the-job experience? And God's like, yeah, kind of cool, huh? No, no, <laughs> not cool. And so here we are. We see Joseph now elevated as the number two man in Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world. And then God does this amazing thing through Joseph. He wisely, during the seven years of plenty, he stores up and um, builds granaries and stuff like that. And then during the seven years of famine, which hits the world, the known world, now Egypt is the breadbasket for the world. And now people are coming to Egypt and saying, we are starving, would you please give us food? And notice who they're coming to. They're not coming to a despot. They're not coming to a dictator. They're not coming to someone who's cruel, but they're coming to someone who is wise. They're coming to someone who was sold into slavery and knows what it's like to be abandoned, knows what it's like to wonder where his next meal is coming from. They're coming to someone who was falsely accused, so someone who then deals in honesty and not treachery. They're, some, they're coming to someone who worked diligently and was faithful, and so therefore the scales that this man uses will be faithful scales, true scales, just scales. They are coming to someone with God's own heart. And so Joseph helps these people, he feeds these people, and then something wonderful happens. A family reunion. See, because God hasn't forgotten about his dad. God hasn't forgotten about his brothers. You know, from his brother's perspective, they didn't realize that God was doing this work. But from Joseph's perspective, as he is trying to cope, you know how it is when you're hurt by people. You're trying to cope. You come up with these defense mechanisms. You say, I'm going to put this out of my mind. I'm not going to remember this anymore. I'm going to shield my heart. God's like, no, no, no. I'm not done with that either. I'm going to bring them back into your life. And so God brings his brothers down because they don't have food either. And what a beautiful story. Like, when you just sit back and think about this whole thing, God knew they were going to starve. So what does he do? He sends their brother ahead. Hey, there's going to fam a famine's coming. You're not going to have any food. That's okay. I got it, I got it taken care of. I'm going to send Joseph ahead, and Joseph's going to have all the food that you need. And there's this beautiful reunion where there are tears, just weeping. I'm probably sure it was ugly crying. You ever seen ugly? Anybody ever had an ugly cry before? <laughs> right? You know, it's not just... It's not just one of these, you know, it's just like, you know, your face is contorted and stuff like that. 
you know, so much so Joseph, like, you know, he's got to be this dignified official. He's, he's working in Pharaoh's court, right? He has to look prim and proper. And, and a couple occasions in the word of God, it says he has to hide himself. He has to go back and weep. You know, and that's what's beautiful about when God does a work of reconciliation. You know, that weeping is a weeping of joy. It's a weeping how, how God has brought together people who were so far apart whether physically or emotionally or whatever, but God brings us together. And you know what God has done? God has done that through his son, Jesus. He brought two parties that were distant. Remember I said it started with a promise. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3. This promise that God says, I'm going to redeem the world to myself. And I'm going to use my son to do it. So Joseph now is being reconciled with his family. And I want you to catch something here because this is really important. You see, I think as I read through this, I can't help but see this seven-year famine as being a type of the tribulation to come. Now think about this. Joseph was rejected by his own, who were his own, his own brothers. He, though he was sinless, he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. Um, he resettles, and he takes a bride among the Gentiles. Asenath becomes his wife, and he has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. He is a messenger of salvation for all who would come to him. Those who were starving, those who were on the brink of death, they knew if they would just come to Egypt and find Joseph, they would have food plenty. And finally, he's reunited with his family. The prophet Zechariah says, one day... When Yeshua comes down, when they finally say, Baruch Habah B'Shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that one day their eyes are going to be open and they're going to say, what are these holes in your hands? And Jesus is going to say, these are the holes I received in the house of my friends. One day it says in Zechariah that they are going to mourn for him as a mother and father mourn for their lost son. That day is coming. And so I see in Joseph a type of the tribulation because the Jews have to go through the tribulation before they can recognize and say, you know what? We missed it. We blew it. Yeshua was the anointed one. He was the Messiah that the Father has sent. He's the one we've been praying for all along. He's the one our hearts have desired this whole time. And by the way, the bride of Joseph, Asenaf, she is a type, or we, represents us. The Messiah takes for himself a bride among the nations. And the reason we are here today is because we are his bride. And so we have been called out from the nations, called out to be his bride. So as I think about this story of Joseph, as I think about this one verse, I know, one verse, I know, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. You see, it's not just an arbitrary by faith. It is something that God has been building and building and building. And God has been planting seed after seed after seed. And he's been watering and watering and watering. And he has been building up the faith of this man such that at the end of his life, as he looks back on what God has done, 
It says he died at the age of 110. As he looks back and he sees the miracles of God, as he sees how God used him greatly. In fact, what he said to his brothers as his brothers are heartbroken, they're like, oh my gosh, we tried to kill you. And Joseph's like, no, 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 you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good for the saving of many lives. As he looks back on this, he's reminded of something. He's reminded that Egypt is not his home. Egypt is not the place where his bones are to be buried. His bones belong somewhere else. And he thinks back to what Abraham said. 400 years God said to Abraham, your people will be in another nation. And your people will be slaves. But I will gather them up and I will bring them back. And Joseph remembers that and says, you know what, guys? We're only going to be here for 400 years. But when God brings you back, when God brings us back, take my bones with you. Don't build a monument for me here. Don't build a sarcophagus. I don't want to be discovered 2,000 years mummified. Hey, we found the body of Joseph. Great, right? I don't want that. I don't want a sphinx. I don't want a pyramid. I don't want anything with my name on it here because this is not my home. I want my bones where my home is going to be. The Bible tells us, um, some, some friends and I, we, we were going through the book of Daniel on Monday nights. We were talking about these, these 35 or 75 days. Like, what does that mean? Because there's in Daniel chapter 12, you guys need to go read it. And, and like, uh, some thoughts are that this is a time when God's going to resurrect the saints. He's going to rebuild the temple. He's going to establish the temple. This is after the tribulation. He's going to resurrect the saints. And I expect to see Joseph among those saints being resurrected. So as we start winding down here, thinking about that, Joseph's faith was added to, was grown, was cultivated such that it became this amazing prophecy. And every year, think about this, every year as, uh, as they are growing, as they're out there in Goshen being shepherds, and, and, and it's a miracle in and of itself because they were shepherds. And so they were separated from the rest of the Egyptians. And the Bible tells us that Egyptians despise shepherds. We'll see that next week. We start talking about Moses. So they were separated. They were cultivated. They were incubated. God gave birth to the nation of Israel in Egypt, and he brought them out. And it's funny how God will mature us and give birth to us in places we never expected. In situations we didn't anticipate. How God will give birth to a faith how God will give birth to uh, an ability, a yearning, a calling in an arena we didn't want, in a, in a country or, or a situation that we never thought about. But we see that here. And so um, as we get ready to close, I want to give you an example of somebody who demonstrates that same kind of faith. There's this guy named George Mueller. He was born in... September 27, 1805, he died in 1898, and he's widely considered one of the greatest men of prayer and faith since the days of the New Testament. He, he lived nearly the entire 19th century. He lived in Bristol, England. Um, he led four far-reaching influential ministries, but we best know him today. When we think about George Mueller, we think about the orphanages that God used him to establish. I want to tell you something about his life, though. Um, these are his words. 
In November 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on the land, on the sea, and whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and prayed on for the others. Five years elapsed, and then on the second, uh, and then the second was converted. I thanked God for the second and prayed for him for the third, for the three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them, and six years passed before the third was converted. I thanked God for the three and went on praying for the other two. These two remain unconverted. Those are his last words there. You see, these other two um, did not get converted in his life. But there's another anecdote regarding that because someone else wrote about this experience about George Mueller after he had passed on. He says, uh, this person says, one day George Mueller began praying for five of his friends. After many months, one of them came to the Lord. Ten years later, two others were converted. He goes on to say, it took 25 years before the fourth man was saved. Mueller persevered in prayer until his death for the fifth friend. And throughout those 52 years, he never gave up hoping that he would accept Christ. His faith was rewarded. For soon after Mueller's funeral, the last one was saved. What a powerful legacy of faith. To believe that God has promised and that he will fulfill his promise, even if you don't see it in your lifetime. That is enduring faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Joseph believed that God would bring his people back, just as he promised Abraham. He did not leave, he did not live to see it happen. He did not live to see it fulfilled. He did not live to see this great nation called out where the Red Sea was parted, where manna from heaven was brought down, uh, where the, um, the sacrifice of the Passover was initiated. He didn't see any of that, but he believed it greatly. And his death did not deter his hope. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. And were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Remember we said that Joseph recognized that Egypt was not his home. So as we think about this, I want to, have, I want to give you three practical things about what our faith should be. Our faith should be a living faith. We should not let the circumstances of the world kill the faith that God has placed in us. We must believe in God. We must trust in God. We must rejoice in God. You know, it's, it's sometimes very difficult for our faith to be living when we're not rejoicing in him. It's difficult to trust him sometimes. It's difficult to believe in him. But you know, we have to come back. We have to come back and say, you know what? I'm going to worship you, Lord. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? As they're standing before Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar says, what God will save you from my fury? And they say, hey, you know what? Our God is able to do it, but even if he does not, their faith remained. And that's the kind of faith we need. Even if God does not bring about the miracle on this side of eternity that we're praying for, even if God does not give us favor that we need, whatever that, if it's a medical condition, if it's a financial condition, whatever it may be, even if God does not bring that about, we still have faith that endures. 
no matter the circumstances, no matter what our eyes see or what our ears hear. Think about Hezekiah as they're surrounded by the Syrians. And they're saying, what God can save you from the power of our army? And who did Hezekiah turn to? His military leaders? His horoscope? No, he turned to the living God. And so our faith needs to be living. It needs to be something that believes in God despite our circumstances. It is something that should motivate us to act despite things being impossible. And in order to do that, we need to cultivate a relationship with the Lord. We need to allow God's word to water us. We need to water our faith with worship. You know, worship isn't just singing songs. Although we love singing songs and praise the Lord for Colson and gifts that God has given Colson. But you know what worship really means? Worship means surrender. And the picture of worship is someone on their knees with their face on the ground before God. Saying, Lord, I surrender all. I surrender my life. I surrender my plans. I surrender my impressions, my conceptions of what life should be, where my path should go. I'm surrendering this to you and I'm giving this into your hands. Worship is surrendering to the Lord. And we need to allow our faith to be watered by worship. And it's not just enough to water our faith. We need to feed our faith. And how do we feed our faith? We feed our faith with the word of God. What did Jesus say? Man shall not live by what alone? Bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from his mouth. That feeds our faith. When we read about Joseph, you know what? When tomorrow things get hard, I can think, you know what, man, Joseph, God used Joseph. God took Joseph through a valley. You know, maybe God's just taking me through a valley. Joseph was falsely accused. This person's falsely accusing me. Maybe this is just my opportunity to stand up for the Lord here. Proverbs 14, verse 13, another aspect of why our faith needs to be living. It says, the wicked is driven away in his wickedness, but the righteous has hope in his death. So death does not kill our belief in who God is. If someone says, I'm going to take your life unless you denounce who God is. No, we should have the courage and faith remains says, you know what? You can take my life, but my soul is in his hands. And I believe that he will raise me up. And I believe that he will bring forth all his goodwill and purposes towards me. Number two, we need to have an enduring faith. It's a faith that endures difficulties. Because let's be real, Jesus said in this life you will have tribulation. But don't be discouraged for I have overcome the world. And so we will go through problems. We'll drive down a road. We'll get a flat tire. Oh, Lord, I'm just suffering right now with this flat tire. I'm being sarcastic because there are things that many people in the world suffer far worse than that. But when we are looking in the word of God, when we're focusing on God, when we're uh, living in expectation towards what God is going to do, no matter what our difficulties are, we can endure those because we know that he has a plan. We can endure trials. We can endure the fallen nature of this world. Why? Because we know that this is not our home. 
Matthew verse 24, 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 through 9, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Hebrews 10, 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. We need to have a faith of endurance. And finally, we need to have a patient faith. We need to learn how to wait on the Lord. His timing often is not our timing. Think about Joseph in the jail. Think about David. For those many years, he was promised, he was anointed to be king, but it didn't happen overnight. It took a while. We need to know that God is not only the main act on the stage, but he's also behind the scenes. And so we're expecting God, okay, Lord, I want you to come out boldly. I want you to do this work. I want you to speak this word. But God is also behind the curtain. And he's also working things out. And we don't see what God is doing. But he is. Because his thoughts towards us are innumerable. Because his word says he knows the plans he has for us. And so we have to trust and believe that God is working things out, though we don't see what he's doing. I like Revelation chapter 14, verse 12 and 13. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that kept the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Isaiah 40, 13. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We need to have a patient faith and trust and believe that God will bring about his good will and purpose in his time. Um, the Jews have a saying. They say when someone dies, they say, um, blessed is uh, the true judge. And they also say, um, uh, whatever is done, it is for the best, it's for the good. We have a similar saying. It's in Romans, found in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. For I know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. You know, we think about what our beliefs are built upon, our, the foundation of our Christian faith. There's so much that echoes back to these Jewish patriarchs, these things that they would do and they would say. And so uh, it's no wonder that Paul himself, being a, a, you know, this man greatly used by the Lord, uh, brings this forth. And so what we have to understand is that whatever is happening in our lives, God is causing it to work out for the good. We may not see it in this lifetime. We may not know it in this lifetime. But we will be known. And we will be raised. And God will bring about his good plan and will for us one day. So let's close with this. 2 Peter, this is your homework assignment. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 13. Because the question becomes, what are we waiting for? Right? What is Joseph waiting for? What are all these people waiting for? These people in the hall of faith. It, it, part of the passage says that they were looking for a land. They were looking for a homeland. What's the homeland we're looking for? Well, Peter says, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. That one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. You know, for the rest of the week, you know, when you're going through things and you're waiting on God, you're trusting in the Lord, remember what Peter says. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. What does that mean? It means 
he's not wasteful. It, it means he hasn't forgotten. It, it means he hasn't set aside. It means he hasn't despised you. It means he hasn't left you behind. In fact, it just means the Lord said it. The Lord will do it. We just don't know when. But what is this promise we're waiting on? What, what are we waiting on? You know what I'm waiting on? You know what Peter's talking about? Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Climate change, by the way. And the elements, uh, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Ooh, really bad climate change. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens shall be on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. A place where we don't have to turn on the news and read about 12-year-old girls being taken from their homes in Afghanistan and married off to men. A place where we don't have to turn on the news and see cities burning people dying of diseases, loved ones afflicted with cancer, a place where goodness exists, a place where righteousness grows like fruit on trees, a place of purity, a place of holiness, a place of hope, a place of God's eternal love. That is the promise we are looking for. Don't lose your hope. Remember that God is a keeper of his word. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to, um, to have hope in you, to trust in you, Lord. Though we don't see it, though we may not in our lifetime see the fulfilling of your promise, Lord God, we thank you, Lord, that we have men and women in the Bible that we can look to who look to that day and whose faith did not wither. Lord, may we walk in faith. May our faith be a living faith. May it be a faith that endures, Lord God. May it be a faith that is patient. And Lord, as we ask ourselves this question, as Peter asked, what manner of persons ought we to be? Lord, may we be people who live for you, in whom the light of Jesus shines brightly, so that this world of darkness will see that there is a God in heaven who loves them deeply. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.